morning again. We, as you've picked up, are going to make you sick and tired of this phrase. Do you know him? If you're not sick and tired of it already, you haven't been thinking about it enough, um, but it's a good phrase to have, kind of walking around with us. Do you know him? That is what we're looking at over the next um, little while, what we will be looking at as a, as a church and actually as a town of churches, looking at do you know him? It's an exciting year. There have already been uh, prophetic words about this year, that it is a significant year in the spiritual life of this town and this community. Um, by people who didn't know what the churches were up to. That's what's exciting. So this year, we're going to be doing Do You Know Him? It's a double-edged thing. It's got discipleship. There will be a sermon series. There are small groups, both in SBC and also interchurch, um, small groups studying the Bible, Bible reading schemes to get to know Jesus better. There'll be prayer events and worship events. But there's also going to be opportunity to do that E-word evangelism. And we looked at it a little bit before um, the Christmas, but last week we had a great session with Chris Dufford about simple ways we can just show God's love to the people in our town. Um, we had a prayer meeting yesterday. We're going to have more prayer meetings. We're going to have the launch event of Do You Know Him? But we looked at <clears throat> the art of connecting before Christmas because he wants us to be equipped to go out and share the gospel with our friends, our family, and strangers in the streets. So we looked at the art of connecting, the connecting of our story, their story, and God's story. And primarily, it's about sharing our lives with others. But this takes confidence, doesn't it? And I'm not necessarily talking about self-confidence, although that does have a factor. It is an issue. I'm talking about a lack of confidence in the gospel itself. I think a lot of us I've got a lack of confidence in the gospel itself. And I want to look at something this morning, something which is really close to me, and one approach that might help us, give us that boost of confidence in our own faith and sharing with others. But first, a story with an embarrassing picture. Oh, that's cute. Oh, Phil had hair once. Um, I became a Christian whenever I was about 11, but I've always kind of known God, um, and I've always known about the Bible and read lots of Bible stories, and, um, and I was good at quizzes, and you may not believe it, but I, I really tried hard to win. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I loved quizzes, and so some people thought, this guy knows his Bible, so he must be a Christian. And one time I overheard a couple of leaders at a summer camp going, oh, Philip, because that was my name back then, um, Philip must be a Christian, and I knew I wasn't. And then one night in August in a small church in Dundonald um, with a guy called Derek Brown, I decided for myself I wanted to know Jesus, not just know about him. And so began a roller coaster of faith. I was Mr. Keen. I, if there was anything Christian, I was there. If music was Christian, I listened to it, even if it was rubbish, because I felt I had to. Um, I read the latest books. I was excited about the latest events. I would have gone, I, I didn't go as far as wearing the cheesy t shirts, but you know, got to draw a line somewhere. Um, I went to the latest events. I was involved in an in a inter-church group. I was leading a, a worship band that was well-established with Youth for Christ Northern Ireland, and I could demolish any argument anyone came up with. I was known as the person to avoid, <laughs> which uh, thankfully it was for the gospel and not because of my BO, okay? Um, I was, people kind of would say, you just argumented it. So if anyone came with a question about the faith, I could answer it. And I went away to university in Durham. And that is me on the bed of the bed and breakfast the night before 
I went into my accommodation at St. John's College, Durham, where it all went wrong. And where did it all go wrong? Well, it all went wrong because God asked me the same questions. Okay, let me rephrase that. I met Helen in Durham. That's not what I was getting at. I knew I should have looked at my notes. I love my wife. Um, she hadn't got to Durham at that point, just so you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> Took me through now. Thank you for that. It all went wrong because God asked me the same questions again, and I couldn't answer them. How do you know I'm real? Well, I know this one. That doesn't answer it anymore. That doesn't answer it. And I was, I remember one particular time, I was just about to pack down for a scrum in the middle of a rugby match at Maiden Castle in Durham, and the sun was setting, and it was a beautiful day, and I just caught a glimpse of the sunset, and I went, wow, this world is futile. Not the best time to have a philosophical moment when you're just about to go in for a scrum. (laughs) But I was a bit desolate. I probably had a touch of depression, which I wasn't aware of at the time. Looking back, I think it did. But something else was going on. God was asking me those questions, which once I arrogantly thought I knew the answers to. And then he deconstructed my faith. And then, I said this reverently, one book saved my faith. In fact, one book was one page. One, one chapter, one page in a book, and that book has been sitting on this bookstall for the past couple of weeks. And it's a book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And it wasn't just this book, it was one chapter in a book, it was, it was one page in this chapter, it was one particular line in this chapter, this page, that asked this question, who would die for a lie? Because the suggestion is these blokes would have done. These 12 apostles would have died for a lie. Let me tell you a little bit about these disciples who apparently died for a lie. Andrew was crucified, Bartholomew was beaten, then crucified, James, son of Alphaeus, stoned to death, James, son of Zebedee, beheaded, John died a natural death after being exiled, Judas, not the Iscariot one, was stoned to death, Matthew was speared to death, Uh, Peter was crucified upside down, Philip and Simon were crucified, Thomas was speared to death, and Matthias was stoned to death, and every single one of them died, apparently sticking up for a lie that they had made up. Now, there are people in this world who have died for lies that they've been deceived with, but I don't know of anybody who has died for a lie that they have made up. There was um, a guy called Charles Coulson who um, said this. He was involved in the Watergate scandal during President Nixon's administration. He pointed out the difficulty of several people maintaining a lie for an extended piece of time. This is what he says. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proclaimed that truth for over 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Utterly impossible. That logic saved my faith. I would not be standing here today 
I believe, if God had not revealed that piece of reason and logic, that was a springboard for me. It was a kickstart that I needed, and it brings me to the area that I feel passionate about, always have done, and I want you to know about it as well. And it's this area called apologetics. Okay? It's a fancy word, I know. But I examined it. I asked questions because I could no longer rely on just the answers because the Bible says so. I needed to know that if Jesus Christ claimed to be the truth, he had to stand up to scrutiny. And this leads me to the apologetics. Now, I know it sounds a bit like going up to someone and saying, I'm really sorry. And maybe, you know, many of us, especially these days, feel we do need to apologize for being Christians. You know, I'm really sorry, but you know, I don't do that because I'm a Christian. How defensive and pathetic does that sound? Or maybe because there are some people in this vast church that we are part of in this world that have dragged the name of Christ through the mud. And because of that, we have to almost apologetically say, I'm sorry that I'm one of them. I'm not talking about saying, I'm sorry. Because this word comes from a Greek word called apologia. And apologia is derived, it's used as a speech or a defense given in, um, in reply to a question, an accusation, or a charge. Especially it referred to a defense made in the courtroom as part of a normal judicial procedure. Um, after the accusation, the defendant was allowed to refute the charges with a defense or a reply or an apologia. An apologia. The accused would attempt to speak away the accusation. Apo, away, logia, speak. To speak away, to address, to answer the accusation. And the classic example is a guy called Socrates, who when he was accused of preaching strange gods, raised a defense against it, and it's reported by his pupil Plato in a book called The Apology. It was a defense against an accusation. And it's throughout the New Testament. I read from Acts 17, a classic part where Paul is using apologetics to address the people of Athens. And throughout this, there are loads of passages in in Scripture, in New Testament in particular, where the apostles in their letters and in the Acts address people's questions, argue, and they, what is another Greek word, dialogomai which is they explain, they provoke, they persuade, they dispute, they argue persuasively. But as much as apologetics or an apologetic approach is not saying, I'm sorry, it's also a mistake to think of it as an argument in the sense that we think of it. That was a mistake I made. I believed I had to win the argument for Jesus. And that was wrong. This is not about winning an argument. It's not a defensive or even an offensive approach. We might touch on that a little bit later on. And even while it can be understood that it is a defense, it's a reasoned defense, an apologia is not meant to cause offense in the way that it's given. But there's one, uh, one passage which, if you want to turn to, I think is really key regarding this, and it's 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Um, and this is what it says. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, an apologion, to everyone who asks you to give the reason, logon, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. 
so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This was the verse that underpinned my youth ministry, especially when we established our first youth group on a Sunday evening called Accelerate. This was our key verse. It was a key verse that I hope that we'll draw out just a few points um, in our time together this morning that might help us all to be Christian apologists in the right sense. And let's see what it says. Let's go for the first part. Christ as Lord. We're going to get to the fact that an apologia is an answer to a question or a comment or an accusation. But before we even get there, there must be something which prompts, provokes, or produces a question from another person in the first place. And this is vitally important. I know we've covered some of this in the Art of Connecting series, but it really bears repeating and emphasizing. If Is your life distinctive enough to cause other people to want to ask you, why is it different? Do you stick out like a sore thumb enough for people to go, why? What's that about? What are they up to? Last Sunday was, um, as I said, brilliant with Chris Duffett. And I recommend if you weren't there, get the video and have a look at what he had to say. He told lots of stories about how they, uh, in Peterborough and other places, they would just go out and bless their community. They'd give it free bottles of water, free bread, a stone with someone with a blessing on it, praying for people. And they'd do these things, you know, give out free hats and do labyrinths and stuff. And one thing that, I, they, that struck me last week and I've struck me a few times when I've spoken to Chris in the past is the number of times people come back from having one of these stones or flowers or bread and they ask this question, why? Why are you doing this? What are you up to? What's it about? Perhaps you didn't come last Sunday afternoon because you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. Because someone might ask you why. Are we living distinctively enough? Now remember during the Art of Connecting, we spoke about leaving our gospel stone in the shoe, causing people to go, something's not quite right with what they're doing. Why? Prompting a question. Something is different as Christ is our Lord. It causes people to say something's different about them. So if something is different and people ask the question, be prepared to give an answer. I was never a Boy Scout. (laughs) Um, But I do know that be prepared is the kind of dib, 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 dob, dob, dob thing, isn't it? And I don't go along with that, but I will tell you a secret. In my bag, I've got a little Bear Grylls survival kit. So it's okay if everything goes wrong, I can build a campfire in here. Um, (laughs) It says, be prepared to give an apologia. Be ready. Now, I'm not talking about stock rehearsed answers here, like you might come across some other people. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are well trained in giving the answers to well rehearsed questions. We're not talking about that. But we want to ask this very fundamental question two questions Do you know what you believe? And do you know why you believe it? Do you know what you believe? And do you know why you believe it? In other words, I want you to answer this very simple question. Why are you a Christian? I would like everybody, if you're able, to look at that question on the board. And I'm going to be silent for up to 30 seconds. I want you to look at it and feel uncomfortable reading it. Because I need you to think about how you would answer that. Why are you a Christian?
It's only now that I realize my second hand isn't working on my watch. Um, but I think that's enough. Let's prove the point. Why are you a Christian? There may be a variety of answers. Maybe the safest one is, I don't know. I just am. Or maybe it was one of those ones, it's just I've always been. You know, I first went to church when I was a fetus and I thought I'd stick with it. Or maybe it's a bit more than that. Maybe it's based on a story about the process of becoming a Christian, explaining your background or recounting what God has done in your life. Last week, Chris asked everybody a really tough thing. He said, come up with your story in six words. Tell your God story in six words. That would prompt be springboards to the rest of your story. I encourage you to go away and do that. Five minutes just wasn't enough. It was really tough. Six words that tell your entire story. Some people did it and it was amazing. What's yours? It is important to think about this before you're asked. Because if we're encouraged to share our story, we need to know what our story is. But even more than that, what's, you know, if we're encouraging you to share a story, why is this apologetic stuff so important? This factual stuff, if we're just sharing stories. I'm going to really look at um, quickly four reasons why I think it's important coming from the apologetics, the verse that we're looking at. If we're encouraging you to talk about this, why are we talking about apologetics? Why? Well, the first thing is a secure footing. Um, A number of years ago, I went swimming with uh, three friends, three of whom are in this room at the moment. And we went to the River Wharf. You can tell Lisa was one of them. She just giggled. Uh, My wife was the other one. You can guess who the other one was, Mike. And we went to the River Wharf, and we had a great time swimming. It was pre-children. It was great. And my three friends cleared off. (laughs) Further down the river, they were having a jolly time, and I was in this bit of river, and my foot slipped, and I realized the wharf is a very deep river. And I panicked because all of a sudden I, was, I was, didn't know where I was. I panicked and I thought, this is it. I, I remember the thought going through my head. I'm going to become one of those stories that people tell to warn people not to go near deep water. I genuinely thought, this is it. This is the end. And as I floundered around trying to get my bearings, I suddenly felt my foot hit a rock. don't know where it came from. Although, geologically, I do. (laughs) Spiritually, I've probably got a good guess where it came from as well. Because my foot found a rock. And I could find my balance. I could calm down. And from there, I could propel myself off to get through the water to safety. I told my friends. They laughed. Anyway, (laughs) it was my way to safety. It gave me a secure foundation upon which to move. We need a secure foundation for our faith as well. It can give us confidence that our faith is not from made-up stories or myths. It's a bedrock for our times of doubt and questions that we will inevitably come to. If you are going out for a meal, booking a hotel, if you are thinking of going on holiday, if you're wanting to book an experience, buy a car or buy a house or employ someone, you do your research. That's why TripAdvisor exists. To find out, is that any good? So if we invest time and energy finding out if it's a reasonable and sensible thing to go to that restaurant or buy that car, Do you think it's a reasonable thing to look into and investigate something which we're prepared to commit our lives to 
indeed prepared to commit our eternal soul and destiny to. Do you think it's worth having a bit of hard evidence to base that on? I think so. And I think other people out there do too. Whether you believe we're in modernity, post-modernity, or generation X, Y, Z, or lavender. I don't know. Knowing we have a secure foundation is really important. And there is so much reliable and secure objective evidence about Christianity. These are just a couple of them, okay? Um, I can't answer all the questions. One, because I don't know the answers. Two, because it'll take too long. If we are interested in doing something like an apologetics workshop, uh, talk to Lisa. Um, no. No, but seriously, if people want to do that, we can look into that. But here's a few pointers. Historical proofs. There are at least eight non-Christian, non-sympathetic, contemporary or near-contemporary accounts about the existence of Jesus and the fundamentals of his story. Jesus is historically reliable. The authenticity for Scripture, the unity of this thing called Bible, over 1,500 years in writing, 40 authors, three languages. We have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament from very early days. The early earliest copy of which is only 50 years after it was first written down. The Gospels can be dated as being written within 30 years of the events which they describe. No other classical text comes anywhere near that, and yet we teach it in schools. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you maybe heard about those discovered in the desert, um, these the scrolls of Old Testament, it proved the accuracy of the copying of the Old Testament beyond the shadow of a doubt. Archaeology, you know I'm an archaeological geek. You know that I go through British Museum pretending to be Indiana Jones. But apart from that, the reason I love going through the British Museum is because there, I see that there's something solid about our faith. I see that there are stones with names that we see in in Scripture that otherwise we would never have known. They were just made up. I see um, pictures on walls, plaster pictures on walls, and I know that Esther walked past them, and and sculptures on the walls of Nineveh that I know, according to the dates, Jonah probably walked past. Now we see these things and we go, this is historical accuracy. Did you know that originally people believed Sodom and Gomorrah was made up until they discovered a stone in the desert in Israel that talked about these places called Sodom and Gomorrah? And then everyone went, oh, the Bible was right. But not just that, the Bible makes sense. Christianity makes sense. You maybe heard of Pascal's wager. It was a wager by the philosopher Pascal that said, it makes sense logically to follow Christ. Anselm, a bloke in the early centuries of the church, came up with proofs of God to the people around him. And then I came up with a thing called who would die for a lie that touched me. It makes sense. And then we have the cosmos. Of course, God and science aren't aren't friends. Of course they are. Creation itself screams a creator. 21st century cosmology actually increasingly points to the fact there is some design behind the universe, without which it doesn't make sense. And Psalm 19 echoes through the corridors of science labs. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. But as much as we seek explanations of how the scientific world works, we want to know other things as well. We don't just want to prepare to have a secure foundation. We also need to prepare the soil. Now, I'm no gardener, but I do know that rocks and weeds are not great for plants. But good soil is. 
Apologetics is not in the strictest sense a form of evangelism. It's pre-evangelism. It's preparing the soil. It's clearing the way. It's removing the debris and detritus. There are so many myths, untruths, half-truths, misunderstandings, presumptions, and inaccuracies out there. And that's just the church. So many myths that are built up around what the truth really is about many people's knowledge of God, Jesus, and Christianity. What is God really like? What do you need to do or be like or even wear to go into church? What do Christians really believe and get up to? Did you know in the early um, years of the church, people thought that Christians were cannibals because they ate and drank the blood and the flesh of their master? That's what people heard, and they thought, oh, I don't want to join them. And then there's the Dan Brown effect. If you can't sell it as historical truth, package it as a story and everyone swallows it. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and we can prove it. Hi, because I said so. People swallowed it because it was a good story. It's what they wanted to believe. It can be torn to shreds with apologetics. I'm just saying that there now. Nearly every time we do the Alpha course, the first few weeks and beyond, I often find with some people, it's a process of unlearning stuff that they've learned about Christianity, about Jesus and about God because it's built up a load of stuff. We're preparing the soil to say, this is a reasonable thing to do. This makes sense. Christianity makes sense. We're not here to prove the truth of Christianity, because if there's 100% proof, there's no need for faith. But these things demonstrate that it's a reasonable thing to do, a reasonable thing to believe in. The resurrection evidence is one of those key things. We haven't got, unless you believe in the Turin Shroud stuff, we haven't got something which evidentially proves that Jesus rose from the dead. However, we have logic and reason. Um, we believe, this is a guy, Lord Chief Justice Darling, who kind of knows a little bit about the law, said, we as Christians are asked to take a very great deal of stuff on trust. We ha- if we had to take it all on trust, I would be skeptical. The crux of the problem is whether Jesus or not was who he said he was or not. It must surely depend on the truth or otherwise of the resurrection. On that greatest point, we are not merely to ask to have faith. In its favor as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive, negative, factual, and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in the verdict that the resurrection story is true. But more than the fact that it makes sense internally, the thing that's really important is it makes sense of the world. You know, our world can be a pretty overwhelming place, especially in this digital age. If something, some disaster happens in the far uh, reaches of, of Indonesia, we know about it in three seconds. So the tragedy of that family, that community, we hear about and we share for a few moments. And that's just one country and way, way off. We're bombarded 24-7 with stuff. It's the cares of the world are literally on our shoulders. And so we don't know what to make of it. We can see great beauty in the world and we can see great evil and depravity as well. And as much as we seek scientific explanations of how the world works, we seek reasons it is as it is. Why is the world like it is in all its beauty and all its brokenness? And this brings us to the classic question of suffering. 
I'm not going to give you the answer to suffering. If I knew what the answer to suffering was, I would have written the book and retired on a healthy pension. There's no fully satisfactory answer. However, the question of suffering, one that we can never fully answer, is asked of Christian, of atheist, and agnostic alike. We all have to answer it and face it. Buddhist, Baha'i, Muslim, Jew, Zoroastrian, or even the new religion of Jediism. All have to handle these same questions. It's not that suffering proves or disproves God, Christianity, Jesus, or any other faith. But what is the answer that is given? Why is the world as it is in its brokenness and in its beauty? Alistair McGrath, who's one of the key apologists in our world at the moment, read his stuff, it's great. He says this, God's existence may not be proved in the hard sense of the word proof, but it can be affirmed with complete sincerity that belief in God is eminently reasonable and makes more sense of what we see in the world, discern in history and experience in our lives than its alternatives. Another classic C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in this, that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So those are the reasons why it's important, this area of apologetics. But one key thing is this. In, in Peter it says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. This is not, I'm going to take a stand and tell you what you should be thinking. It's in response to a question, a query, or an accusation. And here is the top 10, isn't it? How do you know God exists? Where do we come from? Hasn't science disproven God? Jesus, if he existed, he was just a good bloke, wasn't he? The Bible's unreliable, out of date, and full of contradictions. Religion's cause of all the trouble, isn't it? How can Christianity be the only way? Christian morals, a bit restrictive, aren't they? How can a loving God send people to hell even if they haven't heard about him? And what about suffering and evil? These are the questions that we need to face. These are the questions that we fear, aren't they? I've got some homework for you. I would like you to take at least one of those questions away with you and think, what would your answer be? Because someone's going to ask you something. If you are serious about sharing your faith, these are reasonable questions for people to ask and expect you to have an answer for. Doesn't mean you've got to get it 100% right, but you have to have some kind of response to what you say about it. What would you say? You can take a photo of it if you want. I was going to send it out. Okay, have a photo. This feels really weird, people taking photos. Okay. I'll send it out, Andy. Don't worry, I'll send it out. Think about it. It's gone. What would you say? What would you say? But do it like this. How to? I think having a sound, reason, thought out faith is really, really important. It doesn't mean that everything is sewn up 100%. That won't happen. People want an honest answer, not a rehearsed one. They need an honest, I don't know, I struggle with that as well. They don't need to, well, I was told on Sunday that this is the answer. They want to know that you wrestle with the same things. They want to know that you're real. But I believe, and I hope you will get alongside me, that I think Christianity explains the world we experience better than anyone else or anything else, for good and for evil. 
But notice what it says. Be prepared to give an answer to the questions that you're asked, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. We don't answer questions, we answer people. If we answer questions, we are trying to win an argument. If we are answering people, we are entering into a relationship with them. I'm telling you this story, I'm going to wrap it up because I think it's one of the key stories that Alistair McGrath inspired me with. He was teaching a lecture at Oxford University and about apologetics. And one student came up afterwards to him and said, Professor, I really want to ask you this question. What about all the suffering and evil in the world? As if this was a surprise question. I've never heard that one before. What about all the suffering and evil in the world? And Alistair McGrath had two choices. He could have entered into an apologetic debate and told him the correct apologetic answers. Instead, he said, why is that question important to you? And the guy said, "Um, it's important because a couple of weeks ago my mom died. In an instant, this encounter changed from a polemic intellectual argument to a situation of compassion and love and showing the goodness and comfort and love of, of God. If we go for the jugular and try to answer the question and not the person, in that situation, it would have been like vinegar in a wound. Why are you asking? Why is it of interest to you? Is there something that's happened that makes that important? That's really tough. I'm sorry you went through that. It doesn't make sense, does it, suffering? I wish it weren't that way. I think we all do. For me, it points to a God who has suffered for us. It's the only way I can make sense of it, but I can imagine you in your situation. It must be horrible to hear things like that. Does that answer a question? No. Does it tell that person that they're loved and valued? Yes, which is gospel. Do it with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience. The gospel's offensive enough, it doesn't need you to be nasty. (laughs) Do it with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so no one can come back at you and they have be ashamed of their slander. Um, I'm finishing up now because I think it's important, but these are some practical tips I'm going to whip through. You don't need to know everything, okay? You don't need to know 100% answers to everything. And honest, I don't know is is okay. Listen to the person, not just what their question is. It's a person asking you. It's not a question to pass or fail. Watch out for red herrings. So what about all this suffering? Why is that important? Uh, It's not really. Then why are you asking? You just want to have an argument, don't you? Yep. Okay. Pray for the person when you're talking with them. Be prepared. Learn. Think. Ask. Read a book. Go on a website. Think about these difficult questions and go, what would I say? I need some help. I'm going to talk to someone. Can you help me? Be gentle and respectful. Don't use jargon. People are confused enough out there. And always, always bring it back to Jesus. Always. Otherwise, you're just trying to win an argument. (sighs) We'll not do that because it's too long. These are the people you want to be reading. If you want to take a photograph, I'll put it back up in a minute. These are the kind of books you want to be reading. I've got a selection up there. 
Uh, and what we're going to be doing in a moment, the guys are going to come up if you want to come on up, and we're going to worship during that time. Um, we, we can enter into worship, we can sit, we can pray. Um, you can come up to the front and be prayed for, or you can come up to the front and not have the excuse that you need to pick up children. You can come and have a look at some of these books and go, do you know what, I think I'm going to borrow one of these because I want to get a surer foundation. Or sit and have a look at and read a chapter in this space because we're told to worship God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's how we're going to respond. So the guys are going to lead us in some worship. We'll be here to pray. I'll be here to chat. If you want to come and have a chat, we can have a chat. That's fine because we want to be secure going forward. Let's pray together. Everlasting God, we thank you so much that you make sense, and yet we marvel at the fact that you are beyond our comprehension. Thank you, you've given us enough proof and and evidence to make it reasonable to believe and take that step of faith, but yet we still need to take that step of faith. Lord, give us confidence in the authenticity and reasonableness of our faith in you that goes beyond just the Bible says so, but that we have real solid foundation. But Lord, may we also embrace the mysterious you, the supernatural you, the you that answers prayer, that heals the brokenhearted, that comes and saves this lost sinner. Lord, may we hold both intention, but Lord, will you challenge us to become more confident in sharing you in Jesus' name. Amen.